It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Thursday, August 18th. I'm Kelly Reese and this is your KVMR Evening News. We start off with the Battle of the Ports, but as we hear from tonight's California report, there are two very different stories unfolding at the Port of Los Angeles and the Port of Oakland. We then take a look at local news and weather before Mike Dent, Nevada County's Director of Housing and Community Services, speaks with KVMR's Felton Pruitt about the latest on the county's affordable housing project, Brunswick Commons. We close with a commentary by Molly Fisk. That's coming up in the next half hour. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. The Port of Oakland says a protest by truck drivers that shut it down for several days in July had a significant impact on its business. KQED's Nina Thorson reports. The port says the trucker's action was the major factor in a 28% decline in its total loaded container volume in July compared to a year ago. Port operations are recovering from the disruption and congestion, but officials say it might take until the end of this month. The protest was over the implementation of AB5, the 2019 law that changes the way contractors and gig workers are classified in California. The law could affect about 70,000 independent truck drivers who might be reclassified as employees. The port has filed a lawsuit to stop the truckers from blocking traffic in the future and got a temporary injunction in the case. For the California Report, I'm Nina Thorson in Oakland. Meanwhile, the Port of Los Angeles just had its best July ever. Port Executive Director Gene Soroka says that's thanks in part to the port's ability to move ships through quickly now. We've managed to reduce the number of ships waiting at anchor from 109 in January to just 13 today. That's an 88% improvement and a huge accomplishment, all while moving record volume. Soroka says despite recent record volume, he expects August import numbers to be lower. That's because factory orders from China are slowing and U.S. retailers say they have too much inventory. And in other news, a group of dancers at a North Hollywood topless bar have taken the first step towards forming a union. If their bid is successful, they would become the only unionized strippers in the U.S. KCRW's Tara Atrion has the details. A majority of the dancers at the Star Garden Topless Dive Bar in North Hollywood have filed a petition with the National Labor Relations Board seeking a union recognition election. If the NLRB signs off and the election goes favorably for the dancers, they would be affiliated with the Actors' Equity Association, a live theater union representing more than 51,000 actors and stage managers. In a statement, Equity's president Kate Schindel says the dancers have reported consistent compensation issues, including, quote, wage theft, along with health and safety risks and violations. Since March, the dancers have been picketing outside a star garden to protest alleged unsafe working conditions, including a lack of protection from abusive patrons. These dancers wouldn't be the first strippers to unionize. That title goes to performers at the Lusty Lady in San Francisco, who formed the now-defunct Exotic Dancers Union in 1996. For the California Report, I'm Tara Atrion in Los Angeles. And for the first time, workers at a Starbucks in San Francisco have voted to unionize. The store at 18th and Castro Street is the 15th in California to unionize with Workers United. Employees said they felt unsupported by the company, especially during a four-month closure earlier this year due to maintenance issues. Here's James Kreiss, one of the workers leading the union effort. 
Yeah, the specific things we're really looking for are stuff like workers' protections, livable wages, and we really just want to be able to work shoulder to shoulder with our leaders instead of having this top to bottom leadership. Starbucks says that they will respect the unionization process and bargain in good faith. Some state lawmakers are backing the demands of striking mental health workers at Kaiser Permanente. More than 2,000 clinicians are picketing this week in the Bay Area and Fresno. KQED health correspondent Leslie McClurg has more. Clinicians say they walked off the job after a year of failed negotiations. State Senator Scott Weiner authored a current law requiring insurers to cover mental health care. He commended the workers for standing up to Kaiser. There have been major issues at Kaiser in terms of providing people with timely access to mental health and addiction treatment. And the workers have been advocating for years to have more staffing and compliance with the law. And that hasn't happened. State Senate President Tony Atkins and Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon agree. Kaiser says it's trying to hire new therapists, but faces a national shortage of mental health experts. For the California Report, I'm Leslie McClurg. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Paint Care. Now with 834 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel Falcor 2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration, on the web at schmidtocean.org. And finally, more California students are returning to their schools this week as the new academic year begins. But many students won't need to be in class until later in the morning. The California Report's Saul Gonzalez explains. Starting this year, most high schools in California must start classes no earlier than 8.30 a.m. and middle schools no earlier than 8 a.m. That's because of a first-of-its-kind law passed by state legislators back in 2019. It gave school districts three years to develop later classroom start times for students. Why? Well, health experts and the American Academy of Pediatrics say most teenagers are sleep-deprived, with only a small percentage getting eight hours of sleep a night. Moving back classroom start times, it's argued, will give teens more rest, which in turn should improve their emotional well-being and academic performance. Dr. Sachin Panda is a sleep expert at San Diego Salk Institute. And we know that when we sleep, our brain actually processes what we have learned in the day and stores them away. They're also going to have better memory and learning, and they are more attentive at school. So it Push them into this positive feedback loop. Of course, teachers and parents will also have to adjust to the new school schedules, and views are split. San Diego parent Daryl Davis says he supports later start times for students. He spoke to partner station KPBS. If you're rushed, you get to school, you're tired, you don't feel like doing anything, you cra- it's just, no, late starts is the business. This is what we should have been doing a long time ago. I don't know why I think they should have put everybody on banker's hours. But parent Vanessa Gomez says a later school start time will create family scheduling problems. It's going to be a little bit harder for me, to be honest, because I have another kid in elementary and it's going to mess up with their schedule and my work as well. 
Many rural school districts in the state are exempt from the later classroom start times, partly because of how far students have to travel to get to school. For the California Report, I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. And that's the California Report for Thursday, August 18th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Now let's take a look at today's regional news. More avian flu outbreaks have been reported in Northern California, including a backyard flock of chickens in Sacramento County, and a large outbreak among 1,500 privately owned birds in Butte County. The Butte County discovery prompted a declaration of a local health emergency Wednesday. It appears to be the largest outbreak in California, according to records compiled by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Until now, only 40 birds were found to have been infected by the disease in the state, according to the USDA's tally. In addition to the discoveries in Butte and Sacramento counties, the California Animal Health and Food Safety Laboratory has also found two cases of the Eurasian H5N1 strain in Stanislaus County and one each in Mendocino and Santa Clara counties. According to a memo from the California Department of Food and Agriculture, The disease, which is rare in humans and typically caused by direct contact with birds or infected surfaces, can cause symptoms similar to those of human influenza. There's no treatment for the disease. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported one case of a human contracting the disease in May. All told, about 40 million birds have been infected across the country, the USDA says. This reported by the Sacramento Bee. Victims of the McKinney Fire that destroyed homes and killed four people in Siskiyou County have sued the Oregon-based utility company providing power in far northern California, claiming Pacificorp power lines sparked the fire. While fire investigators with the United States Forest Service remain tight-lipped about what caused the blaze, the lawsuit argues power equipment is to blame. The fire ignited July 29th at a time of dangerous fire weather in a rural area by McKinney Creek near Klamath River an unincorporated community on Highway 96 in Siskiyou County. A spokesperson for Pacificor declined to answer questions about the McKinney fire and said the lawsuit prevented the company from discussing the matter. Pacificor filed a report with the California Public Utilities Commission six days after the fire started, alerting regulators that its equipment was in the area of a fire. The company did not report any problems with its equipment to state regulators. The lawsuit alleges Pacificor was negligent in its maintenance operation and inspection of its power lines, and names two other fires as evidence of the utility's problems. The 2020 Slater Fire, which burned nearly 160,000 acres and killed two people, and the Archie Creek Fire. The McKinney Fire has so far burned over 60,000 acres and is 95% contained. The blaze has destroyed at least 194 structures. This from the San Francisco Chronicle. Were you puzzled over your missing copy of The Prospector in today's edition of The Union? The newspaper says due to printing issues, this week's Prospector will be in Friday's edition of the Union. Turning our attention to local weather and your air quality index, the National Weather Service has issued a heat advisory for the Sacramento Valley and adjacent foothills, including Grass Valley, in effect until 7 p.m. Saturday. These staggering temperatures significantly increase the potential for heat-related illnesses, particularly for those working outside or participating in outdoor activities. Heat risk is expected for the duration of the heat advisory. In addition, Sacramento will be under another poor air quality alert Friday as temperatures continue to rise above 100 degrees. Sac Metro Air Quality Management District's alert system, known as Spare the Air, 
is asking residents to reduce air pollution by working from home, taking transit, driving an electric or hybrid vehicle, or using active transportation options. According to the Sacramento Bee, the AQI level will increase to 133 on Friday. A healthy AQI level would fall between 0 and 50. The range of 100 to 150 AQI is considered unhealthy for sensitive groups. Roughly 70% of air pollution created in the summer is caused when car emissions are cooked in the hot summer sun. Trapping pollutants in the ground-level ozone, says Jamie Arno, a spokesperson for the Sac Metro Air District. Now on to the temperatures. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, clear with a low around 68. Friday, sunny and hot with a high near 99. Current air quality is good with an AQI of 10. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 49. Friday, sunny with a high near 82. Current air quality is good with an AQI of 3. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, clear with a low around 64. Friday, sunny and hot with a high near 106. Current air quality is unhealthy for sensitive groups with an AQI of 115. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. After two years of construction, Nevada County's affordable housing project is nearly complete. Come August 22nd, Brunswick Commons, overlooking Sutton Way and the Brunswick Basin, will have 60 residents waiting for their keys. KVMR's Felton Pruitt gives us the details. We're talking with Mike Dent. He's Nevada County's Director of Housing and Community Services. And Mike, let's chat about Brunswick Commons. What do you say? Well, Brunswick Commons, it's right up the hill above uh, Sutton Way in the Brunswick Basin. I'm sure many of the listeners have been wondering what's going on up there. That's a county-sponsored affordable housing project. There's going to be 41 units of affordable housing, of which will include 12 units of permanent supportive housing. So uh, Felton permanent supportive housing is is for folks who are clients of behavioral health. And, um, you know, as a community, we have a responsibility to take care of all of our residents. And these folks are uh, functioning and can live on their own, but they do need a little bit of support. And it varies from very minimal to sometimes uh, they'll be checked up on daily by uh, case managers. But the rest of the units, the other, there's 28 units, tenants will be referred from hospitality house. So this is a big win for hospitality house to create to loosen a little bit of the logjam, you know, when you have uh, an emergency shelter and there's nowhere to go um, and you're housing ready, which means you have some sort of reliable source of income and you're at the point in your life where you're dealing with any other issues and you're ready to uh, move out into your own place, it's important to have uh, a place to go. So that's been a, a, t- a bottleneck throughout this country and especially in California with the housing crisis for folks who are housing ready, but coming out of or at risk of homelessness to move, you know, to move up into their own place. So this will give us a total of 40 units with one unit being the manager's unit of housing. The building, it's, it's going to be mostly one bedroom units. Uh, there's 33 actual one bedroom units and eight two bedroom units inside the complex. So there will be some, uh, some families that will be occupying some of those larger units. The rest will be single adults. 
and there's also a playground and a community room and there'll be case management on site uh, for a good portion of each day. How did this project come about? Well, it was a vision originally Hospitality House saw the opportunity up there, it's five acre parcel, and uh, approached the county back. It was about 2018. And then uh, we said that is something that is a priority with the Board of Supervisors, really, since, you know, 2017, it's been a top priority of the board to develop all range of housing, including affordable. So we moved forward, the county staff moved forward with, we ended up purchasing the property and in the partnership it's the properties leased back to the developer, but the partnership with Hospitality House continues, and that's why they'll be the referral source for most of the units. And then with the No Place Like Home funding we received in 2019, that brought about $1.6 million to the project that helped with the financing. That'll give us 12 units of behavioral health supportive housing. So it's a real good addition to um, the affordable housing in our community. There's going to be a ribbon cutting for Brunswick Commons coming up on August 22nd. Yeah, we're coming up on two years of construction. So we began, began construction in the fall of 2020, and we see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, the building, for all intents and purpose, is completed. We're waiting for PG&E to do the final connection on electrical. As you may have heard, that can be an issue with new construction waiting for your your turn in line to get the uh, electricity flipped on. We were hoping to have that done on the 5th, but they've rescheduled it to the 19th of August. And we really think that we can have that building occupied with the tenants who have already been vetted and background checked and everything, uh, tax credit, you know, all the normal examinations that happen with any tenant when it comes to, you know, evictions and criminal history and the credit report to some extent. Uh, that's all done. So we have uh, about 60 people all together that are ready to move in once we can get this occupancy certi- certificate. It certainly sounds like a success story for Nevada County. Yeah, we're, we're excited about it. Yeah, so the ribbon cutting's on the 22nd. It's a, kind of an invitation-only event, but um, we'll have the media out there to get some good pictures and interview some of the important players in this project. You know, you just can't go, hey, I want affordable housing and people line up to do it. You really got to fashion and craft the funding package so you can get a developer interested so you can actually get the tax credits that are really needed to build affordable units that are not market rate. So we're looking forward to this addition into our community. Well, thanks for updating us with all this information. We've been talking with Mike Dent, the Nevada County Housing and Community Services Director. Hey, we'll talk to you the next time another big project comes up like this. Good work. Thanks, Felton. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, observations from a working poet. It's always a question whether to mention something on the radio or not. NPR doesn't have this problem, but if you're in a small town and write about what's going on around you, there are serious moral and practical considerations. Some are easy. When you see two people holding hands and gazing at each other in that dumbstruck way over a cafe table, you don't tell. Maybe Herb Cain would have told in some pseudo-roundabout way, but you live down the street from the woman and her husband who is not here in the cafe with her. 
It's not your job to spread this news, and maybe you've jumped to the wrong conclusion anyway. Perhaps they're siblings who were adopted into different families and just now found each other. It doesn't look like it, but let's remember you have been wrong once or twice before. NPR, being national and news-oriented, would of course mention the teenaged mountain lion napping in a sycamore tree. If I do, though, and name the location where this occurred, who knows what might happen? People could panic and try to kill it. Vigilantes swarming the neighborhood. Or wildlife photographers descend with their long lenses and night goggles, cluttering up the side streets and scaring the poor lion out of its wits. You have to be careful with information. This is why so many people write fiction. It's just less trouble than reality. We're in a drought here in California, and not a normal drought either. A bad drought. A long one. I don't know who started this business of exaggeration. Probably a five-year-old in 1412. But now we have super moons and super tides, super cuts, super-sized super-duper burgers, I kid you not. It's supercilious in the extreme. I haven't heard super drought yet, but we are rationing water, and this has led, as privation does, to theft. People are stealing each other's water. In some places, the rationing is crucial. This week in London, you can be fined 10,000 euros for washing your car with a hose. We aren't at that point yet in the Sierra, but across the globe, this is what's coming. Every couple of nights, one of my friends reports that his hose spigot has been turned off, and the hose itself isn't coiled the way he leaves it, but tangled. This means that the attached irrigation line doesn't get water when its timer goes on. He's flummoxed about how to manage this. If it's a homeless person needing a drink, he wants to be generous. But if it's someone filling 10-gallon cans, he'd like to dissuade them. And can that be done? Are there spigot locks at the hardware store? Does he set up a wildlife camera to see what's going on? Is this a police matter? I thought lack of water was going to be a serious ongoing personal problem for Californians in about 15 years, but I seem to have underestimated. Here's the ethical radio dilemma. Does hearing about this prompt you to think about climate crisis solutions or explain a water problem you have yourself? I fervently hope it isn't giving you a great new idea for larceny. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast for this Thursday, August 18th. KVMR gets support from listeners like you and the 22nd Annual Nevada City Film Festival. August 26th through 28th, bringing independent international cinema to historic downtown Nevada City with films from across the globe, guest filmmakers, and special events. Tickets, passes, and details at nevadacityfilmfestival.com. 
and Automotive City, offering complete automotive service for foreign or domestic vehicles, also smog testing, Napa Auto Care Center and AAA facility. Monday through Thursday, 7 to 4.30 p.m. AutomotiveCityGrassValley.com The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Thank <laughs> you.